Cockrum, and I'm in private practice in San Diego, California, and I'm going to be talking about thyroid eye disease, specifically the delayed diagnosis of advanced thyroid eye disease. The symptoms are often misdiagnosed. They can present as dry eye symptoms, allergic symptoms, cheering, irritation, itching, aching, which is pretty common. It's the most common reason patients present to eye doctors. Also could present with intraocular pressure elevation, bulging the eye, double vision, redness, swelling, blurred vision, and oftentimes it's unmasked by some other surgical procedures such as a cataract procedure where the patient postoperatively has persistent conjunctival injection and chemosis. The most common signs are proptosis, double vision, eyelid retraction, creating that stare, the eye too wide open, corneal breakdown, and the least common is optic neuropathy. Most patients are not as severe as this patient, and so that's why patients go undiagnosed because they have less obvious symptoms and signs. So the look of thyroid eye disease is extremely heterogeneous. And you can see here, some of the patients have a white eye, some of the patients have a bulging eye, some of them just look like they have kind of a puffiness to their eyelids. So they can come in thinking they need an eyelid lift or a lower lid blepharoplasty. So it can be very, very subtle. So you wanna ask the right questions and look for thyroid eye disease. So what are the key questions? Well, these are the ones that I recommend to my endocrinologist and my primary care and my referring optometrist and ophthalmologist. These are very key. Ask the patient specifically, do they have double vision when they wake up in the morning? How might you phrase that? Well, in the first five to 10 minutes, when you look at your, your phone, do you, are you able to read the small font? And if they say no, you wanna think about thyroid eye disease. Then you wanna look and see where the eye redness is. So if the surface of the eye is, is red in the area that is exposed, that can be allergies, that can be irritation. But if it's, it's on the lower part, specifically over the recti muscles, then you wanna think about thyroid eye disease. Does the patient have ocular hypertension that then changes in upgaze? So for instance, maybe they're 24 intraocular pressure and when they look up, it goes up to 30. Again, you wanna think about thyroid eye disease. And then finally, you wanna specifically think about patients who have dry eye symptoms, so grittiness, tearing, irritation, but when you do a Schirmer's test or you look at them at the slit lamp, they have a normal Schirmer's and a normal tear lake. You wanna think about thyroid eye disease. And then these, will, these questions will key you to look for bulging that might be some subtle, inflammation, the bloodshot eye, and then ask them about pain. So the pain that accompanies thyroid eye disease is kind of, it's more vague. It's kind of an ache, sort of like a toothache if you've ever had a toothache. So what's the workup? So independent of what the severity or the duration of the disease, I'm gonna do a complete dilated exam, which includes visual field testing, OCT testing, looking for subtle signs of optic neuropathy. I'm gonna recommend some labs, which include thyroid stimulating hormone, free T3, free T4, but specifically TSI, which is a super good marker for cell-to-cell -cell signaling between the thyroid tissues and the eye tissues. And then I always get imaging. Most patients with thyroid eye disease are not big fans of sitting still with an MRI for 45 minutes. So many opt for a CT scan that's very quick, easy, and no contrast. What are the therapeutic options? So if the patient is red, hot, painful, double vision, you can certainly talk with them about the conservative therapy. So artificial tears without preservatives, gels or ointments at bedtime if their eyes aren't shutting, an eye mask of some sort, and then supplementation with vitamin D or selenium. Some Practitioners use topical steroids um, or intranasal steroids. And then you can talk to them about other things that can come up. So corticosteroids, and those can either be intranasal, retrobulbar, 
oral or intravenous. Some practitioners uh, combine external beam radiation with corticosteroids or utilize off-label biologic therapy. Tepertubumab was FDA approved in 2020 and is one of the uh, options that is now available for patients. In addition, there's uh, multiple therapeutics in clinical development awaiting FDA approval. Therapeutic options in the chronic phase are more typically decompression using either removal of bone and or fat, strabismus surgery to repair their double vision, especially in primary and down gaze, and then eyelid retraction repair to help them have their eyes shut. Since 2020, tepertubumab has also been FDA approved for all severity and duration of disease. So tepertubumab does play a role in patients with chronic eye disease. Let's talk about a case study. This is a 62-year-old woman who presented with progressive bulging and blurred vision. This was in the midst of the pandemic when tepertubumab had first been FDA approved. I'm here in the state of California. We, we were shut down for a good six to eight weeks. So really surgical intervention was not an option. She'd been seen by six eye care providers and diagnosed with dry eye syndrome. And she was using artificial tears, but with preservatives. She was diagnosed with ocular hypertension, although her ocular hypertension was significantly worse than upgaze, which would have been a clue. She had some mild cataracts and her disease state had impacted her quality of life greatly with change in her job and her insurance availability. On clinical examination, she had a clinical activity score of six, which is you get a point for pain, redness, swelling of the eyelids and or conjunctival tissues. Her chief concern was that she couldn't see. So her vision was 2200 bilaterally. And even though her bulging of her eyes, her proptosis didn't look that severe, she had a severe bilateral optic neuropathy. Specifically, her color plates, her ability to see red, green, that sort of thing, um, was severely impacted. So she had one out of 11 color plates and the color red with the red top looked very kind of grayish, orange, or even brown. She did have significant cataracts, but they were not explaining her 2200 vision. She had the other symptoms that we talked about, tearing irritation, blurred vision, pain, especially on lateral gaze, and then she had the redness and swelling. So I did all the things that we just talked about. So independent of the plan th therapeutic, I'm gonna do this in each patient, and in her case, she de demonstrated significant visual field defects secondary to her compressive optic neuropathy, and she showed compressive optic neuropathy. Here you can see on this axial CT scan, she had a markedly enlarged medial rectus muscle, and her optic nerve was compressed right at that apex. So definitely I talked to her about conservative therapy. She was non-smoker and never smoker, but if someone is a smoker, you do wanna let them know to stop uh, because that can cause any autoimmune disease to get worse. She was using preservative, including artificial tears, and I, so I moved her over to preservative free. I talked to her about gel or ointment and the use of saran wrap or plastic wrap of any kind with an eye mask at night. I told her to supplement with vitamin D, avoid salt and MSG, and then to consider sleeping with the head of her bed elevated. But in this case, we needed to move because she had bilateral optic neuropathy and we were in the midst of a pandemic that had shut down options. Uh, the infusion centers were altered, external beam radiation would have been difficult, and the surgical uh, approach was made much more difficult by the fact that all the hospitals were, had lots and lots of COVID patients and the patient really didn't want to go to the hospital. So what were the therapeutic things I would have done before the FDA approved IGF-1 inhibitor, tepertubumab? Well, I could have used IV steroids. So in this case, I classically would have admitted the patient for at least three days of IV steroids. 
and then tried to get her more under control in terms of her inflammation before then going on to remove bone or intraconal fat. But none of these things that we had before had any impact on the size of the muscles. So when I did a CT before and a CT after, you really didn't see the dramatic change that you now see with tepratumumab. So what were my pre-treatment questions and workup? So I, I did talk to her about the different things that she had going on. You know, does she have diabetes? Anybody in her family have diabetes? I actually personally got an hemoglobin A1C, a random glucose. Most of the PCP offices were closed because it was the midst of the pandemic. I talked to her about whether she had any history of inflammatory bowel disease. And I don't phrase it this way because almost nobody has the diagnosis. I say, do you have any history of constipation or diarrhea or alternating the constipation and diarrhea, especially if there's any bloody diarrhea? That can be inflammatory bowel disease and that would make me want to refer her for a GI evaluation. Also, I talked to her about whether she had any hearing loss, uh, recommended that she get an audiology. Of course, again, we were in the midst of the pandemic, so that wasn't possible. And then talked to her about some of the side effects that can occur with the tepratubumab, which include muscle spasms, headache, changes in her hair, nail, skin. And then also talked to her about her, her alcohol intake, which can alt cause uh, changes in glycemia. So as I said, we did a hemoglobin A1C, uh, got glucose levels. She was supposed to be two hour postprandial, but I think she was more of a random, so it was closer to that. Got the thyroid function testing, including the TSI, and then tried to get her at least a video visit with her primary care. She did not have an endocrinologist at the time. In addition to that, I do a, a comprehensive metabolic panel, and if the patient is of childbearing age, I would get a, a urine pregnancy test. So what are the most common side effects seen in patients who receive IV tepratubumab? The most common for sure is muscle cramps or spasms. It's typically in their feet and in their calves. High blood sugars can occur, changes in menstruation. Specifically, patients can have their, their menstrual period stop completely during the course of the treatment. They can have hearing problems, including tinnitus or kind of a, it's like you're in a hallway or a, a tunnel sort of sensation and true neurosensory hearing loss. They can have nausea. Other less common things were hair loss, um, the diarrhea. Most patients did feel pretty tired the day of the infusion. Very few had taste changes, headache, dry skin. On occasion, I had patients who did have weight loss and then the nail problems along with the hair loss could be persistent. So what are the infusion details for tepratubumab? Well, the first infusion is, is a half uh, dose, so it's 10 milligrams per kilogram over a 90-minute period. If they do well, and the infusion reactions are, are very infrequent, less than, less than 4%, and then they go to the 60-minute infusion with the full dose, which is 20 milligrams per kilogram, and then they have additional infusions for a total of eight infusions every three weeks. The time spent at these outpatient infusion centers was usually in the three to four hour range um, between getting the IV started, the infusion, then observing them afterwards. The most common things that I found were muscle spasms and fatigue, and those can be mitigated with hydration, magnesium supplements, and even Epsom salt baths. In some of the more private uh, infusion centers, you can get magnesium infused at the same time, or you know, not with the infusion, but at the same uh, visit to help with mitigate some of these things. 
So here's our patient. So I, this is one of my very first patients that I used Tepertubumab, and I was just astonished because look at that medial rectus. So the medial rectus rapidly diminished so that there was no optic neuropathy and resulted in a reversal of her optic neuropathy or improvement of her vision and visual field with just a couple infusions. So was, I was very excited about how quickly it worked on this patient. And here you can also see just the changes in her face. So thyroid eye disease causes deposition and alterations in the face. So it can make you look mad because you're in pain and so you get more of your glabellar lines. Um, but it also just changes the thickness of the eyelids, the deposition of the fat around the eyes. And so you can see after eight infusions, she's looking more like herself rather than her other thyroid eye disease colleagues. So again, just to stress, it's not only an improvement in the position of the eyeball, the size of the eye muscles, but there's improved facial uh, structures so that the patients feel better, they feel more like themselves, and, and so the quality of life and just their whole feeling about themselves just improves. And she gave, gave me permission to show you this. So this was a picture of her about six months before the onset of the thyroid eye disease. The center one is her meeting me. Um, that was the day before I met her. And you can see she's wearing a hat. She's had extensive hair loss. The whole shape and, and her facial structures have changed in addition to the proptosis and the visual loss. And then here's her just eight infusions later. So without any surgical intervention, just the intravenous tepertubumab. She was restored much more back to her own appearance and certainly the restoration of her, her visual function was super important to getting her employed and happy again. So in summary, tepertubumab reduces inflammation and reduces the size and volume of extraocular muscles and fat in a way that no other therapeutics do. Surgery doesn't. Surgery changes, we remove bone, we can move a little bit of fat, but there's nothing else that makes the extraocular muscles return to their more no normal structure. It involves eight infusions over 24 weeks, and the results are pretty rapid and dramatic, oftentimes being seen only after the second infusion. The side effects are pretty minor and short-lived, with appropriate patient selection. You can mitigate many of the side effects, but again, you wanna be extremely careful to not recruit patients who are not going to take birth control. That would be bad. You don't wanna recruit patients who are diabetic and aren't gonna be willing to abide by their diabetic diet. You don't wanna uh, recruit patients with inflammatory bowel disease, and you wanna be extremely careful in patients with hearing changes. So it's an effective as a first-line treatment or after other treatments have failed. It works in chronic, stable patients and for optic neuropathy. So it works independent of severity of disease, independent of duration of disease uh, with a nice safety profile. Thank you for your time.